Father, this morning, we, uh, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful that it's, that it's living and active, as we, as we said earlier in the creed, that it's, it's sharper than a two-edged sword. And, and, and we're inviting you right now, Lord, to, to do surgery on us if we need it, to cut into us, to, to show us the things that we need. But we also are aware that your, your word is a, a healing balm, and we're inviting you to, to bring that to bear in our lives that we might be whole and healthy, able to serve you the way that you want us to. And Lord, we trust you to do that because you're faithful. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, this section of scripture that we're looking at this morning, um, it, it's, it's pretty common for us. I mean, we, we read this or a parallel section of scripture pretty much every year around Easter time. Um, we're, we're familiar with this section of scripture. We already know that, that Jesus prayed in the garden. We know that he was arrested and put on trial. Uh, we, we know that he predicted Peter's denial. We know that Peter denied him. I mean, we, we know all of that stuff. So, so what can we say about this section that we don't already know? Well, I would suggest that we have seen in this series that uh, Matthew's writing often goes deeper than what's on the surface, um, often he's referring back to things that he already said or back to the Old Testament. And so we're gonna, th- this section is no exception to that. We're going to see that as we go through. And so I want to actually begin back in Matthew 11, and then we're going to preach through the entire 15 chapter. No, I'm kidding. We're just going to kind of refer back to that because this is going to set, um, it, 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 it has precedence for what we're going to look at in 26. So if you remember in Matthew 11, um, John the Baptist is in prison and he sends his disciples to say, hey, are you, to Jesus, and to say, hey, are you the guy or are we supposed to look for another? And if you remember, Jesus, Jesus didn't answer directly, but he just kind of summarized his ministry. The blind are seeing, the lame are walking, the leopards are cleansed, the, the deaf can hear, the, the dead are raised, the, the gospel is preached to the poor. Jesus is actually there quoting from the prophet Isaiah. And if you understand the context, He's saying, hey, Isaiah was saying all this stuff about me, but then he quotes from another section of Isaiah where he says, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. The the wording there is such that it could be rendered, blessed is the one who does not stumble over me. Or more accurately, blessed is the one who is not scandalized by me. Why, why would anyone be scandalized by Jesus? Why would anyone stumble over him at that point? I mean, after all, he's doing, he's doing miracles. He's doing signs and wonders. He's preaching that the kingdom of God is at hand. Why would that be a problem for anybody? Well, in Matthew 11, the problem is that John the Baptist is in prison. See, how at that point, how can Jesus be the Messiah? The, the, the Messiah, part of what he's coming to do is to release the captives. And here is the supposed forerunner of the supposed Messiah, and he's in prison. No, no wonder Jesus might think that John would be stumbling over him, would be scandalized by him. So, okay, fast forward into chapter 26. Jesus returns to that same topic. The, the disciples have just had their Passover meal together. They've, they've gone to the Mount of Olives and he predicts there that his disciples are going to stumble and fall because of him that night. And just like in Matthew 11, the word that Jesus uses is the word where we get our English word, scandal. So the disciples are gonna be scandalized by Jesus. They will stumble over him. 
the uh, Young's literal translation of verse 31, all ye shall be stumbled at me this night. The, the word literally refers to a, a stone that someone stumbles over. Uh, Leviticus 19.14 commands Israel not to lay a scandal in the way of a blind man to make him stumble. So, so Jesus says that all of the disciples are going to be scandalized by him. Instead of a, a rock of refuge that they expect him to be, he's going to become the stone of stumbling. And they stumble for the same reason that John and his disciples may have Think about it, a Messiah who leaves a trail of suffering and imprisonment, what kind of Messiah is that? A Messiah who's arrested, put on trial, and convicted, and who says and does almost nothing in his defense, that's not the kind of, the, of Messiah that the Jews wanted. Remember what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1, the preaching about Christ crucified is foolishness to the Greeks and a stumbling block to the Jews? So the, the, the disciples in this case were, were typical Jews in that they wanted, they, they wanted a, a Messiah that was going to take over, come in, in power, if you will. They were offended by a suffering Messiah. They wanted a conquering Messiah. That's not what they got, at least not on the surface. So then when Jesus tells Peter that he will deny Jesus, the word deny there is kind of interesting because Matthew has used that word several times previously in his gospel, but it's always been in the context of Jesus saying, deny yourself and follow me. And so this is the only time that it's used other than that, and it's talking about denying him. See, apparently from Jesus' perspective, there's only two options. You can deny yourself or you can deny him. You can deny any attachments to things like security and safety here and now and follow Jesus to the cross. Or you can find, try to find at least that safety and security in the things of the world and deny him. Those are the only choices. And the disciples are going to stumble and fall because they won't deny themselves. They'll deny Jesus instead. And, and, and understand here that Jesus in this section, he's referencing back to the prophet Zechariah. God spoke through the prophet that he was going to put a, a stumbling stone in Israel's path. Now we know from our vantage point that that's Jesus, all right? But... But Zechariah, in that, in that prophecy, the people who stumbled are scattered, but not permanently. He, he scattered people, but they, they, they were brought back together after they had been um, perhaps refined would be a good way to put it. And just like that, Jesus knows that his disciples are stumbling, but it's not going to be permanent. They're going to, they're going to stumble. They're going to be scattered there's going to be some purification that happens, but they're going to come back together. And, and I love the grace that we see in this section. Think about it. Jesus knows what's about to happen to him. He knows what he's going to go through. He, but, but, but he's looking down the road. After I am raised up, I will go before you into Galilee. Yep, I know you're going to deny me. Yep, I know you're going to fall away. But you're coming back, and I'm going to be there for you. I love that. That's the grace of God, his mercy at work, his love reaching out. Even when he's going through agony, he's still thinking about them and loving them in the midst of that. So Jesus knows what will happen down the road, but for this night here in Matthew 26, the disciples are going to stumble and fall. On this night, they're going to be scattered. They'll eventually be brought back together. They'll eventually be sent out to make disciples of all nations, but this night, 
They're going to scatter because the, 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 the shepherd is struck. I want you to think about that, that phrase, that idea of thinking there, because when the flock is scattered, the, the vulnerability is increased. I, I used to, uh, when, when I was younger, there was a, a show on TV, I think it was called uh, Wild Kingdom. If you ever watched that show, um, oftentimes, pretty regularly in that show, there is a predator coming in, and when the predator starts getting close, what happens? The flock scatters. And the predator wants that because if they're all separate, they're a lot easier to pick off. Are you following me here? That's what our enemy wants. He wants to scatter the flock. God doesn't want his people separated out there on their own because we're, we're, we're out there without a shepherd because we're, we're all a lot more vulnerable that way. There's a strength in our connectedness. That's why, one of the things, that, why we come together like this, why we stress the, the importance of being involved in a home group, because there's a, a strength there. And I've had people say, oh, I, I don't need to be in a building to be a Christian. And that's true, I get that totally. But see, you were born again into a family, into the family of God. And part of the reason for family is to all of those scriptural one another's, love one another, encourage one another, protect one another, honor one another, teach one another, care for one another, comfort one another, pray for one another, on and on. And you can't do that on your own. You have to be with others in order to do those things. When you're removed from family, when you're scattered, you're far more susceptible to attacks from the enemy. So Jesus says the, the shepherd will be struck, the flock will be scattered, and that is clearly not a good thing from Jesus' perspective, the way he's saying it here. All right, so then comes the scene of Jesus praying. And, and I don't know about you, but whenever I read that, that section, there's like some angst going on on the inside of me because I get the impression that's what's going on inside of Jesus here. He's kind of struggling. But Hebrews 5.7 tells that same story from a, a different perspective, if you will. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. I don't know about you, but when I read Matthew 26, I'm not getting the same impression that I'm getting here in, in Hebrews verse. Are you with me? It just seems like a, it's telling a different story. It's different than what it appears to us. I mean, Jesus... He prayed three times and he seemingly got no answer. I mean, after all, he, he actually went through death, if you will. But see, in the, in the spiritual realm, there's a different rendering of the story, a different perspective on it. He's delivered from death, but only by going through death. He didn't sidestep the grave. He's taken to it. But what happens? He rises in victory. Totally different perspective. Think about it from a different perspective here. Um, the, remember the Apostle Paul prayed three times, just like Jesus prayed three times. Prayed three times for the, the thorn in his flesh. 2 Corinthians 12. To keep me from being too elated by the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being too elated. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. So three times, just like Jesus prayed three times, three times he prayed that he would be delivered from this. And then finally God answered, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. See, Paul in essence was delivered, but not by having the thorn removed. He was delivered by learning to endure it through faith. Different concept. 
See, there can be times when God takes you and me into places that we don't want to go. Oh, we don't want to hear that one. Now, now Matthew makes a point of Jesus being with Peter, James, and John. Actually, here in Matthew 26, it says uh, Peter and the sons of Zebedee. But we know who the sons of Zebedee are, all right, James and John. And if you remember the last time that Jesus was with these three same guys, at least the, the last time that we are told in Scripture, was on the Mount of Transfiguration, right? Same guys there in chapter 17 of Matthew. So what happened there? They, they saw Jesus gloriously transfigured. They saw this, this amazingly bright light. They heard the voice of the Father speaking clearly. So here we are in chapter 26, these same guys together, and I don't think this scene could be any different. I mean, it, it is so radically different from that Mount of Transfiguration one. Instead of the transfiguration glory, Jesus grieves to the point of sweating blood. Luke 22, it says his sweat came like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Instead of the, instead of the Father's voice speaking, there's silence. Instead of the, the, the bright light that's as bright as the sun, there's darkness. And it appears from our perspective here in Matthew 26 that the powers of darkness are prevailing. I mean, this is a radically different scene fact is that the disciples didn't necessarily see it. They were asleep. Three times Jesus encourages them to watch and pray, and three times he finds them sleeping. Think back to the previous chapter, uh, chapter 25. Steve preached about it two weeks ago. Remember the, uh, uh, the, the, the parable about the, the ten virgins? And Jesus is telling his people they need to watch and pray. They need to stay awake. And here are his disciples doing just the opposite, falling asleep, not watching and praying. But see, I think if they had stayed awake, I think they would have seen a glory that was greater than what they saw on the Mount of Transfiguration. This, what's happening here in this section, this is real glory. This is kingdom glory. The Son submitting to the Father. The glory of the Son willing to drink the cup of God's wrath to redeem you and me. The shepherd struck for the sheep, for the sake of the sheep. It, it's, it's his power made perfect in weakness. Let's be honest, that's a glory that most of us haven't figured out yet, haven't walked in yet. And before we move ahead from this section, there's one other piece here I, I want us to see, and that's that, that the, uh, and I didn't know this, the word uh, Gethsemane in Hebrew means olive press. It's, it's, a, it's the place where they would, press the olives to get the oil out. So it's a place where there's intense pressure applied. Seems kind of fitting, doesn't it? That that's where Jesus would go in his hour of anguish and cry out to his father. And when Jesus said, my soul is very sorrowful in verse 38, the Greek word there seems to be hard to translate into English. It's a sorrow so deep that we don't have an equivalent word for it. We have to put at least one modifier in front of it. The ESV says very sorrowful. Other translations say things like, things like deeply grieved, deeply distressed, overwhelmed with sorrow. The message says, this sorrow is crushing my life out. Is crushing my life out. Seems pretty appropriate that he's in an olive press, doesn't it? But I want you to think about this. Why is this such a deep sorrow for Jesus? I, I know he's going to the cross. I get that, all right? But it's deeper than that. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake, 
he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Think about that. This is, this is Jesus, the holy son of God. He's never experienced sin in his life. Sin is what separates us from God. But the Father made Jesus to be sin. I can't even begin to imagine, let alone try to to describe to you what Jesus went through in this process. And we don't know if that process began there in Gethsemane, but at the very least, he knew that it was coming. No wonder he's in such deep sorrow. For the one who knew no sin, to become sin and to be forsaken by the Father, to to endure the Father's wrath because of sins that he had never been involved with and yet now they're, they're a part of him. My goodness, what was that like? And he willingly did that. He suffered that agony so that we, you and I, might become the righteousness of God. Warren would have said, you missed a good place for a hallelujah right there. And then comes the the arrest. I think... I think Judas obviously was enticed by money. He, he asks the chief priest, how much will you give me to, to do this, right? And it kind of reminds me of the parable of the sower, the seed that fell among the thorns was choked out because of the love of riches. But let's be honest, the, the other disciples weren't a lot better. They were like the seed that withered on the stony ground because of persecution. So they're all kind of in the same boat. But at the arrest, the text says, one of those who was with Jesus drew a sword. Now, we know that it was Peter from John's gospel. Matthew doesn't actually name the name here. You know, I have to wonder, did, did Peter make a deal with Matthew? Hey, Matthew, if you write this, don't, don't mention me, okay, in that part. Yeah. But John's going, it was Peter. He did it. And, and I, I, I find it interesting that Matthew uses the word sword six times in the span of nine verses. And each of these, it's, it's, a, it's an actual sword, an actual weapon, if you will. And I think that's important because he only uses that word one other time in his entire gospel. And that time, it's more of a figurative use. I've come to bring, not, I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. So, so Peter here, think about this, Peter here draws his sword. I think it's interesting that he had one, all right? Um, and Jesus rebukes him, put your sword back in its, into its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. One commentator said that, that this was for Peter another form of denial, if you will. Because even though Jesus was trying, or Peter's trying to defend Jesus, he has in essence sold out to the other side. Uh, who is it that comes to steal and kill and destroy? Yeah. So he, he's not actually siding with those that have the clubs and the, the swords. I get that, all right? But in a spiritual sense, he's going against what Jesus taught. Jesus didn't need Peter to defend him. Jesus is like, that's not the way of my kingdom, Peter. Uh-uh. And Matthew doesn't tell us that, that Jesus healed the guy's ear, all right? We know he does because Luke tells us that. But given the fact that Jesus did that, given the fact that Jesus knew he was going to do that, He was going to heal the guy's ear. I can't help but wonder whether Jesus' words, all who take the sword will perish by the sword, if they weren't at least partly intended for all those other people there that had the swords and the clubs. Hey, you guys keep going down this path. You're going to end up in a not good place. You with me? 
Now, obviously, it, it, they were intended for, for his disciples. They might have been intended partly for those guys, but he was, he was talking to his disciples. And, and I, sorry, vivid imagination. I have, to, I have to wonder what's going on. I'm trying to, trying to get inside of Jesus' mind at this point. What, what's going on there? Because he's telling them, you know, don't, don't do the sword thing. And I have to wonder, is he going, have you guys heard nothing that I taught you? My kingdom is not of this world. It's not like these guys with the swords and the, and the clubs. My kingdom is a kingdom of love. It's not about blasting one another. It's about loving our enemies and praying for those who persecute us. And let's be honest. If we really recognize that, you and I are scandalized because that is so far from where we generally live. All right, I'll be honest, that's so far from where I generally live. I am often far too ready to take up the sword, to blast those that are seemingly on the other side, those people that do stupid and crazy things, those people that wreak havoc in our society. I want to take up the sword. And don't get me wrong, I think there should be consequences for people who do wrong things in society. But according to Romans 13, bearing the sword is the government's job, not mine. As part of the kingdom of God, my job is to love. It's quiet in here, you guys. And, and what I'm about to say might stretch past what, what Jesus was actually saying, but it struck me, so I'm going to add it anyway. You can do with it what you want to. If you're living by the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, then you should expect to be attacked by a sword. In other words, you should expect persecution. We should expect that people, are, if we're really living by the Word of God, if we're proclaiming the Word of God, we should expect that there's going to be people that don't like us. Sorry. But, but in the end, the sword of the Spirit is the victorious sword. It's the ultimately conquering sword, if you will. When everything is said and done, we win. God's word keeps going on forever. All right, then, next section, Jesus is put on trial. Um, but I want you to think about th this whole thing because Jesus ate the Passover meal with his disciples. And if you've ever seen a demonstration or heard anything about the Passover meal, you know that it happens just after sunset. That's the, that's the beginning of the Jewish day. It goes from sunset to sunset. So it's, it's already dark, and they're having the Passover meal. Then they go over to the, uh, the Mount of Olives to Gethsemane, where Jesus prays, and it's dark there. And then the, the, the mob comes with the, the swords and the clubs and the torches, and it's still dark, okay? And then they go into the trial. And it's after the trial is all over that Peter denies uh, Jesus, and then the rooster crows, which means it's now morning. So everything that's just happened has happened in one night. It's all, it's all, so, so what I'm saying here in this context is that the entire trial has taken place under the cover of darkness, which isn't the way that it would normally happen. And you got the priests, the, the scribes, the elders, this is an official court of law for the, the Jewish people. Now understand that there were other courts throughout the land, all right, but this is kind of the, the main one. We would almost liken it to our Supreme Court. Not really, it's a different function, but, but it's, it's like the, the big game, all right? right that, so that, this is the main thing. And 
it was an official, the Sanhedrin, it was an official assembly of about 70 Jewish leaders that gave the Jews some self, sense of self-governance even under our, the Roman occupation. So that's where Jesus was tried. I think that's in your notes, isn't it? Okay. So as an officially appointed court, they needed to follow certain, certain rules, certain procedures in what they did. They, things had to be done a certain way. Now, that's not to say that they were without bias in this particular case. We heard last week from Wayne, the beginning of, of Matthew 26, then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth. The, the King James uses, or New King James used the word trickery, to arrest Jesus by trickery, by stealth, and kill him. So these guys were clearly against him, all right? They, they wanted to find him guilty and condemn him to death. That was the goal from the, from the outset. But they couldn't do that without a trial, without witnesses, without evidence. So verse 59 says, the chief priests and the whole council, the, the Greek word there is really Sanhedrin, all right? Um, the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus. They might put him to death. So the whole group, is seeking false testimony. They clearly are against him from the get-go. So, so because they know the verdict that they want, they're looking for these false witnesses. They can find people that are going to say things that aren't true. And as long as they can, can fulfill making it look like everything's on the up and up, then they're good. They, you know, if that means deception, they're okay with that idea, which is a little scary to me. So think about this. The loss is they have to have two or three witnesses. But at this point, they're, they're only doing that for the sake of appearances. They're not trying to, to really do anything just or right. They're just trying to make it look like everything's okay. So this mock trial, this, this, this kangaroo court, if you will, it's held under the cover of darkness, and it finally climaxes when Jesus admits who he actually is. And, and the high priest thinks this is blasphemy. Caiaphas is making an assumption that what Jesus said isn't true. But it is true, and Jesus really is who he claims to be. And very soon, he's going to, as he said, be seated at the right hand of power. And, and I'll be honest, as I look at this scene from a purely human perspective, I have to wonder, how did these guys get to this point? I mean, it could not have been their goal from the time that they were little that, hey, I hope someday I'm involved in a, a trial where I can help condemn an innocent guy. You with me? So, so how did they get to this point? Well, let me say that most people generally don't veer off course by intentionally taking big steps in the wrong direction. It's the little everyday incremental decisions that we make. Compromise here, another one over there, and soon we're a long way from where we should be. The Jewish religious leaders, these guys, the ones that were su supposed to be the, in the know about all things God and pertaining to God, they were so far from him that they didn't even recognize the Holy Son of God when he's standing right in front of them. I don't know about you, but that's sobering to me. Now, I want us to understand um, two verses, 63 and 64, titles that are used there, Son of God, Son of Man, that those, those titles um, 
back in this day would not have meant the same thing that it means for those Jews. It would not have meant the same things that it means to us as Christians today. Son of God in the Old Testament isn't so much a a statement about divine nature as it is uh, a messianic title given to to the descendant of David who would, uh, would, would build the temple. The Son of Man is not so much talking about human nature, although that's involved, obviously. It's referring back to the vision that Daniel has um, about what, one like a Son of Man who's exalted and received uh, authority over the nations, all right? And Jesus has repeatedly used that title, Son of Man, over and over throughout the book of Matthew. We see it again and again. And this is kind of the, the climax, the, the final piece of the puzzle uh, where Jesus references himself as the Son of Man. He said, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. The Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of Man will suffer many things, but will rise from the dead. The Son of Man will come in his kingdom with his angels. So, so, so here, when he says that, uh, about the Son of Man again, he's declaring that the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of power. He is in essence saying that he is going to be sharing authority with God Almighty with the one who, the creator, the one who is over Israel. And from the high priest's perspective, this is blasphemy. So they're able to find a couple of witnesses, two people who at least said something that seemed to be true. I don't think they really understood what Jesus said. If you read John 2, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. All right, so the two witnesses in Matthew 26 said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. That's not really what he said. He said, you destroy it. Talking about himself, okay? So they they were close. I mean, I I think they maybe misunderstood. I don't know if they were just trying to be intentionally. But they, so so the Jews took this, this twisted, almost true statement coupled it with what Jesus said, and he's convicted. So procedurally, everything has been done correctly. Every I has been dotted, every T has been crossed. They did what they were supposed to do, except except that in convicting Jesus of blasphemy, they are unknowingly convicting God incarnate. They're convicting the one who gave the law of blasphemy against the law. Uh, how ironic is that? And, and then if you keep reading, the religious leaders seem to be completely ignorant of their own scriptures. And this isn't the first time that we've seen that, right? They're actually uh, fulfilling prophecy as they spit on and, and slap and beat Jesus. From Isaiah 50, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But by doing those things, they're, they're, they're proving that he's the one who's going to bear the sins of his people. And they're, they're not even seeing it. And on top of that, then they even fulfill Jesus' own prophecies about himself. I mean, we've seen multiple times throughout the book of Matthew that Jesus said he's going to be handed over to the chief priests and elders. He's going to be put on trial. He's eventually going to be uh, put on a Roman cross. And, and we see those very things happening right here, just like Jesus said. It's almost like he knew beforehand or something. All right, and then finally we get to the the end part of this section, and that's uh, Peter's denial. And I find find Peter's denial to be fascinating. Think think back when Jesus said that Peter was going to deny him. What was was Peter's response? 
Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And then two verses later, it gets even stronger. If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And see, that's what we think of. We think about him, him saying that's not gonna happen. And then we fast forward to the end where he does deny. But, but there's another piece of that whole thing in the middle. Remember when the, the mob comes into the Garden of Gethsemane. Who is it that pulls out the sword? See, think about this. It's one thing for us to be sitting around talking amongst friends and saying, I'm with you all the way. But when the, when the guys with the torches and the clubs and the spears come, when push comes to shove, at that point, that's more likely the time you're going to go, mm, maybe not. But Peter's right. I mean, there doesn't seem to be any hesitation on his part. He's right there. He's ready to go. And that's why I find it interesting that later in the courtyard, apparently outside of where the trial is being held, that there are two servant girls, one at a time, ask him, hey, aren't you? And this isn't like the, the, the swords and the clubs. This is just a servant girl. And he emphatically denies it. Just lies through his teeth right there. And then a bit later, the, a group of people apparently ask him the same kind of thing, and he's already denied it, so he's already been lying. He may as well just keep that same approach. Why not do it again? <sighs> Truth is that denying Jesus is easier, and not just for Peter. It's easier to laugh at that off-color story that your coworker tells. It's easier to listen to and maybe even pass along that gossip that you know you shouldn't. It's easier to, I'll let you fill in that blank for your own life. It's easier to deny, to deny Jesus. No matter how strong you are or think you are, it's easier to deny Jesus just like Peter did. Wait a minute, Tom, you didn't tell us you're going to be meddling this morning, sorry. And say what you will about Peter, he wants the right thing. The, the last part of that verse, he went out and wept bitterly. That's a heart that God is going to hear. Someone who is, is penitent, admitting that they've blown it, that's the one that the father comes running out to greet. All right, let me tie this all together for you. This morning, maybe, maybe you've seen yourself in something that I've said. Maybe you've seen yourself in Peter's willingness to deny Jesus. Maybe you've stumbled over Jesus because he hasn't done what you wanted him to do. Maybe... Maybe like the Apostle Paul with his thorn in the flesh and, and, and Jesus praying in the garden, maybe you haven't seen the answer to your prayer that you wanted. Maybe, maybe you've had some inclinations toward pulling away, scattering, as it were, away from any shepherd. Maybe you feel like one of the three disciples that were caught sleeping when you should have been watching and praying. Maybe there have been times that you felt like Judas and you felt like you betrayed Jesus. 
Or maybe, maybe you've been like the Sanhedrin and done things under the cover of night that you shouldn't have done. I'm telling you today, there is a Savior who knew no sin but became sin on your behalf so that you might become the righteousness of God. You have been made holy and righteous before God. I've long been a fan of Sovereign Grace music and yesterday they released a video of a new song for their new Christmas album. And at the beginning it says this, O come all you unfaithful, come weak and unstable, come no, you are not alone. O come barren and waiting ones, weary of praying, come see what your God has done. What has he done? For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We have been made pure and holy because of what Jesus did on the cross. Just like Jesus telling his disciples, I I know you're going to fall away, but when I'm raised, I'm going into Galilee before you. He's telling you, I know you've blown it, but I'm meeting you here today because I love you. I love you. Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful for your mercy that is ever extended toward us. Lord, we thank you that you willingly took our sins upon yourself, that you who knew no sin became sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God, that we might be pure and holy because of what you've done. Lord, something that we could never achieve on our own, you have done for us by your grace and by your mercy. And God, today we are grateful for that gift, that unspeakable gift of righteousness that you have given to us. Amen.